All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs over coffee. Today we have with us Dr. Marima Ruhotina. Dr. Ruhotina is a MIGS fellow at Yale, and she is going to be continuing um, her laparoscopy series with us today. Welcome, Dr. Ruhotina. Thanks for having me back again. All right, so Mary, we've done a lot of stuff with laparoscopy, um, but you need gas to make laparoscopy work. So that's what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we've kind of gone through how do you, you know, approach abdominal entry. Now that you think you've entered the abdominal cavity, you have to somehow insufflate the abdomen. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, so usually the gas for insufflation is carbon dioxide. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as our podcast goes today. And that's how we develop pneumoperitoneum. Um, this pneumoperitoneum will cause an increase in the intra-abdominal pressure or the IAP. Um, usually insufflation is done at a rate of about four to six liters per minute to a pressure that's set by the surgeon of about 10 to 20 millimeters of mercury. And the pressure is maintained by a constant gas flow throughout your case, which is about 200 to 400 milliliters per minute. Now, Mary, I know that we had talked about this in residency, but refresh my memory. I know that causing pneumoperitoneum can obviously cause some effects on the cardiopulmonary system. So let's go through some of those. Absolutely. It actually causes effects not only on the cardiovascular system, but on the respiratory, renal, GI, you name it. So we'll go through all of those together. In terms of cardiovascular specifically, so this increase in the abdominal pressure affects the venous return, affects systemic vascular resistance, and then myocardial function. So the increase in the intra-abdominal pressure results in compression of the vena cava, which decreases the venous return to the heart decreases cardiac output. And then in turn, you have also systemic vascular resistance that is increasing because of the direct effects of increased uh, intra-abdominal pressure. Um, And then the systemic vascular resistance change is usually greater than the reduction in cardiac output. So this results in maintaining or even increasing systemic blood pressure throughout the case. Also, increased intra-abdominal pressure results in that increased systemic vascular resistance. It also results in systolic and diastolic pressure increases in tachycardia, which again will increase your myocardial workload. And then if you keep increasing the intra-abdominal pressure, um, it will eventually decrease cardiac output further and then ultimately lead to decreased blood pressure. So in essence, basically, you're going to, with this increase in intra-abdominal pressure, um, ultimately, you're decreasing cardiac output by really a variety of mechanisms, and you're increasing the strain that the heart has to work because it's just pumping against extra gas. Absolutely. That's just a really nice summary there, Nick. Tell me now about the respiratory system because I imagine that there's got to be some effects there too. Yeah, absolutely. So in general, when you have a patient in supine position with general anesthesia, you're going to have a decrease in the functional residual capacity of the lungs. Now you add pneumoperitoneum and Trindelenburg to that, you're going to have a cephalad shift of the diaphragm, which is further going to decrease that functional residual capacity. And this can also lead to atelectasis, ventilation perfusion, mismatch, potential hypoxemia, and hypercarbia. And Mary, you had mentioned that um, 
gas can cause a lot of other effects on the body. So talk to me a little bit about some of the other systems they can affect. Yeah, absolutely. So the renal system with increased abdominal pressure, you're going to have increased renal vascular resistance um, and reduction in GFR, which then leads to decreased function and decreased urine output. So you can see a transient decrease in urine output. And then in terms of GI, the increased abdominal pressure can potentially lead to regurgitation of gastric content with increased risk of pulmonary aspiration. And then lastly, thinking about neurological side effects, this increased abdominal pressure leads to increased intracranial pressure, and that may result in decreased cerebral perfusion pressure. Overall, I think it's important to understand that having increased abdominal pressure has wide and diffuse changes in the body, and that you need to consider this for your patients and understand their medical history and if they would be appropriate to undergo all of these drastic changes that occur when you're insufflating an abdomen. All right. That's a lot of stuff to think about, Mary. Kind of moving on from systems, though, I'm curious to know how carbon dioxide ended up being the gas that was chosen for laparoscopic insufflation. Because I imagine that once upon a time, somebody had like a lot of choices of like, do carbon dioxide or do full O2 or nitrogen or something like that. I mean, I don't even know what kind of options there were, but um, do you know anything about that? And can you give us an idea of why CO2? Yeah. So CO2 is the most frequently used gas for insufflation. It's colorless, it's non-toxic, it's non-flammable, and it also has the greatest margin of safety in the event of a venous embolism since it's so rapidly absorbed from the peritoneal cavity. Additionally, the metabolic end products are easily exhaled through the pulmonary alveoli. Alternative gases include nitrous oxide, air, helium, or argon. For nitrous oxide, the benefits there are less acid-base disturbances that you can see, um, and then there may be a better profile for the severe cardiopulmonary disease side effects that CO2 may have. And they've noted that there is less post-operative pain for patients who have nitrous oxide as their gas. Um, however, it is a combustible medium, so that's a very important thing to consider. The Nitrous oxide is not combustible itself, but if combustible gases are present like hydrogen or methane, for example, seen in a bowel perforation, then it's going to support combustion. And then argon and helium are also other gases that were alternatives. Um, it avoids complications for hypercarbia or acidosis, as you can see with CO2, although there's decreased solubility in the blood, and therefore there's increased risk of extraperitoneal gas extravasation, such as gas emboli. It's also much more expensive. What about administering like humidified or like heated carbon dioxide, Mary? Do people ever do that? Yes, there's been studies to understand, is there any benefit to administering cold or burst heated CO2? And compared with cold gas, heated gas led only to a minimal clinically insignificant rise in core body temperature. And so without any meaningful improvement in any patient outcomes or ease of surgery. So the extra cost of heating or humidifying the gas during laparoscopic surgery um, is not justified by most studies that have reviewed this, um, in addition to a most recent Cochrane review that went through about 22 randomized trials, and that's the conclusion that they made as well. 
All right. And another question on CO2. You mentioned earlier that it gets absorbed and there are definitely metabolic consequences to that. Can you take us through kind of some of those consequences? Yes. So in terms of consequences, we kind of talked a little bit about them before as well, but CO2 is readily absorbed from the peritoneum, which causes an increase in PaCO2. Um, And again, we talked about this a little bit ago, that it's going to increase your cardiac contractility and reduction in diastolic filling, which can result in decreased myocardial oxygen supply to demand ratio and a greater risk of myocardial ischemia. In addition, it can lead to arrhythmias. So you can have um, sinus bradycardia, asystole. These are all attributed to the vagal stimulation that can be initiated by stretching the peritoneum with insufflation. And you can see this more readily at the beginning of insufflation when you're first kind of really pumping the abdomen to create your pneumoperitoneum. The other things that you can see with CO2 insufflation is subcutaneous emphysema, pneumomediastinum, and pneumothorax. This may occur if you have incorrect positioning of the gas insufflation needle or trocars or by gas dissecting across weak tissue planes attributed to increased abdominal pressure. The last thing that's really important to consider, although extremely rare event to happen in laparoscopic surgery, is a venous gas embolism. It's, like I said, rare, but it is a fatal complication. And, you know, as OBGYN residents, I feel like we consistently get tested on this topic, whether that's through CREOGS or in our written boards. I'm sure oral boards may bring this up as well. But so this is if carbon dioxide is insufflated directly into a blood vessel or by gas being drawn into an open vessel. So the physiological effect caused by CO2 is less than that caused by air because remember, CO2 is about 150, 200 times more readily soluble than air. However, what you can see from a patient side of things is hypotension, desaturation, and then that classic mill wheel murmur. Um, the way that you treat this is you rapidly desufflate the abdomen and you start resuscitation measures for the patient. You place them in left lateral position and then aspirate the air from a central line if you can do that. Well, that sounds very scary, Mary, and I'm glad that I'm not doing laparoscopic surgery anymore. Um, <laughs> but in light of that, let's go ahead and move on and talk about some of those indicators on the insufflation machine. Because I feel like when we were doing laparoscopic surgery, our attendings were always like saying, like, watch the numbers, watch the numbers, like make sure that you know you're in the right place. So talk to me a little bit about some of those things, like for example, that preset insufflation pressure. What is that and why is it set to what we set it to? Absolutely. So there are a lot of indicators on the insufflator machine that are important to understand prior to starting your surgery. So the preset pressure, like you said, Faye, this is a pressure that is set by the surgeon prior to starting the case. The preset pressure that we usually see is between 12 millimeters of mercury and 15 millimeters of mercury. The reason why 15 has been chosen as kind of the standard insufflation pressure is multiple studies have shown that above a pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury, there is going to be negative side effects for uh, cardiovascular physiology. And so they looked at different animal studies and basically a pressure that is close to 20 has the uh, following side effects. So it markedly impairs renal function. It reduces GFR um, and renal blood flow 
to 21 and 23% of their baseline values, respectively. It adversely affects cardiac and pulmonary systems, um, especially if you have prolonged intra-abdominal pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury, lasting for about three hours is what they noticed. So if you have a brief increase in intra-abdominal pressure above that 15 millimeter mercury threshold, most healthy patients can tolerate that. And particularly if uh, you remember from our first kind of series of the podcast, we talked about in extremely thin patients to decrease the risk of major vascular injury when you're entering the abdomen, you can insufflate the abdomen to a higher pressure, for example, 20, 25, just for a brief period um, so that when you place, place your primary trocar, you have less of a risk of injury. And then you should immediately back the pressure down to 15. And that patient should ultimately have no long-term issues because it was just a transient increase in that abdominal pressure. So the biggest thing to remember is at the pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury, it's well known that the cardiopulmonary, renal, and abdominal effects are minimal from CO2 insufflation, and they're still reversible at that particular pressure. Um, and then whenever intra-abdominal pressure decreases due to a leak of gas outside, the insufflator will eject gas inside to maintain the pressure that you set in this preset pressure um, area of the insufflator machine. And then if the intra-abdominal pressure increases due to external pressure, the insufflator will then basically suck back some of the gas from the abdominal cavity to, again, maintain that pressure to the preset pressure that you uh, placed. That's kind of cool. I didn't know that the insufflator is actually able to kind of like suck in, suck out to try and achieve that target pressure. So I guess that brings us to our next indicator, which actually is that you get a constant reading of the actual intra-abdominal pressure, right? Yeah. So then that's the next indicator is the actual pressure. Um, so this is sensed by the insufflator. So with a varies needle attached, there can be some slight error in the actual pressure reading because of the resistance of flow of gas through the small caliber of the varies needle. However, many insufflator uh, machines actually deliver a pulsatile flow of gas when the varies needle is connected, um, which allows you to still have a low reading of the actual pressure measurement in the intra-abdominal um, cavity. If there is a major gas leak, the actual pressure will be less and the insufflator will try and maintain that pressure by again, ejecting gas through to it, its fullest capacity. What about something like, you know, your flow rate and also the total gas used? I feel like these were the things that I, w I was a little bit confused about because I kind of could understand, you know, actual pressure and the preset pressure. But why do we care about things like flow rate and total gas used during a case? So flow rate is the rate of flow of CO2 through the tubing of the insufflator. Some studies suggest, and this is basically through animal studies, you should try and have the lowest flow rate um, when you're initially placing the varies needle, so about one liter per minute, because they notice that 
if you had a higher flow rate when during that initial entry, if you weren't, you know, positive that you were actually in the intra-abdominal cavity, and um, that there was an uh, increased risk of air embolism. And so what they noticed is that if you administer the flow rate at the lowest level, so about one liter per minute, when you initially enter the abdomen, you have less of a risk of uh, embolism. When you actually know that the cannula is in the correct place for um, like your actual trocar and you know that you're in the intra-abdominal cavity, then you can set the flow rate to the maximum flow rate that's available, which is usually about like 40 liters per minute in most insufflator machines that you can see. And then in terms of total gas used, so this is another and the last indicator that you see on the insufflator machine. So normal size human abdominal cavity needs about 1.5 liters of CO2 to achieve the intra-abdominal actual pressure of about 12 millimeters of mercury. In some larger abdominal cavities, you may see up to uh, three liters of CO2 needed to achieve that intra-abdominal pressure, rarely five to six liters. And then whenever there is less or more amount of gas that is used to insufflate a normal abdominal cavity, the surgeon should suspect some sort of error in the pneumoperitoneum technique. Um, this may be a leak or maybe preperitoneal space creation or extravasation of the gas. All right. So we've gone through some of those indicators, Mary, um, which obviously are during your case or as you've placed the various needle. But what actually kind of to take a step backwards do we need to do even prior to starting the case to make sure that we're set up for success with insufflation? Yeah, absolutely. So now that you understand how the general machine works and all of these different settings that you can have on the machine, then even before you actually place the you know the tubing attaching to the varies needle you need to make sure that it, the machine itself is functioning appropriately um so one you to want to turn the machine on make sure that you have uh, enough co2 gas in the co2 cylinder um, make sure that you have an extra co2 container in the room if needed and then after connecting the insufflator to the sterile tubing turn the insufflator to a high flow um, and then what you should see is the actual pressure reading should register as zero, right? Because you're not in any sort of cavity, you're not in any sort of tissue, it's just free flowing. So that actual pressure should indicate or should register as zero, I should say. And then kink the tubing to shut off the gas flow. What you should see, the insufflator machine should respond and say, the pressure indicator should rise rapidly to about 30 millimeters of mercury. So that's that actual pressure. And then you should see your flow indicator should go to zero. Um, and that kind of lets you know that the machine is functioning appropriately. So you guys may have seen attendings in residency kind of kink the tubing, look at the machine, see that it's responding. It's actually a really good thing once you understand how all the buttons on the machine work then you can actually test and make sure the machine is functioning properly. Because if those readings aren't correct and you enter the abdomen and that machine isn't calibrated appropriately, isn't working appropriately, then you may be in big trouble because you don't know what the actual pressure is that you're looking at in the abdominal cavity, which is the most important thing that we think about when we enter the abdomen. In residency, one of the favorite ways that um, attendings would get into the abdomen would be to just go in with the gas on um, with the varies needle so that we could kind of 
see exactly what the pressure was in the abdomen. Can you talk to us a little bit about like why that's a good technique and how we actually know once we're in the abdomen based on those pressure readings? So that's a great question, Faye. In one of the previous podcasts, we talked about when you place a varies needle, there are so many different techniques that you can use to kind of gauge, are you in the abdomen? Are you in the correct place in the intra-abdominal cavity? However, a lot of data shows that, you know, attaching the insufflation tubing and looking for an intra-abdominal pressure that's about eight millimeters or less is a very reliable confirmation that the varies needle tip is placed appropriately in the intra-abdominal cavity. If you have a patient that is obese, the intra-abdominal pressure um, may be higher than non-obese patients, so it can be up to 10 millimeters of mercury. If you have a reading that's higher than that, then you are likely not in the uh, peritoneal cavity, and you need to readjust your varies needle. And remember, it's just three times that you should do that, and then you need to find a different location in the abdomen. All right. And speaking of troubleshooting, um, let's move on to kind of troubleshooting some of these things. Because I think frequently in the operating room, we've got stuff that comes up where, you know, you're seeing something on the machine and you're having to interpret it or the machines doesn't seem to be working correctly. Um, tell us about a couple scenarios. Absolutely. So these next couple scenarios are actually very important, obviously, while you're in the operating room. But for residents who are taking the FLS exam, uh, several questions will pop up about how do you troubleshoot these potential issues with pneumoperitoneum. So one of the first things is you have loss of working space. So that means that all of a sudden, you know, you had a beautiful insufflation of your abdomen and then boom, the abdomen is desufflated. And then if you look at the pressure settings on your insufflator machine, you see that the actual pressure is higher than your set pressure and your flow rate is just not there. So you want to make sure that you check the actual and the set pressure of the pneumoperitoneum. You want to check the relaxation of the patient. Um, so you want to look for intra-abdominal muscle contractions or firmness of the abdomen. Um, this is different than the anesthesia checking neuromuscular twitch as diaphragm relaxation is different than intra-abdominal relaxation. You want to check the valve on the connection of the insufflator tubing. You want to check the insufflator tubing along the entire path and make sure that it's not kinked. In general, so if you have loss of pneumoperitoneum, you have your actual pressure is super high, you don't have any flow, it's a mechanical obstruction. It's kinking of the tubing, someone is standing on the tubing, or there's a closed valve. So just double check all of those things. That's your kind of troubleshooting for that particular scenario. So now you have another scenario, you're doing the same thing. You have loss of that working space, and now you look and the actual pressure is lower than your set pressure and your flow rate is super high, this indicates that there is a leak somewhere. So you want to check the insufflator tubing to make sure the tubing is connected appropriately to the insufflator and to the ports. You want to check all of your ports, make sure the valves are closed. You want to make sure that none of the ports are leaking CO2. And then you want to check for distension of bowel or bladder catheter as CO2 can escape into hollow organs like your bladder or your bowel. All right, so that's, again, if you lose your working space and your actual pressure is super low and your flow rate is super high. And then your loss of working space, and now you're looking at your actual pressure is lower than your set pressure. 
and your flow is nothing. So you have no flow, you have no pressure in the abdomen, you just need to ensure that your machine is on and that you have actual gas that's flowing for that scenario. And then lastly, if the screen is blank, likely there's some disconnected power cords. So make sure you reconnect things. Those are the most common things that you might encounter when you're troubleshooting in the abdomen um, with your pneumoperitoneum. Well, this has been a great episode on pneumoperitoneum and troubleshooting gas while we're doing laparoscopy, Mary. So thank you so much for coming on to this podcast again. Of course, anytime. Thanks, Mary. And uh, once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. If you enjoy this episode, go ahead and go onto Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CreagsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CreagsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, want to support us, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash CreagsOverCoffee. Send us some love, we'll send you some swag. We'll have show notes for this show and every other show on our website on www.creagsovercoffee.com. If you have a question for us, a correction to this or any other episode, or you just want to say hello, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.